the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is an incredible passage that we just heard read from 1 Corinthians. It's one of the deepest wells uh, in the New Testament, sort of worthy of endless, boundless reflection. It's Paul explicating the upside-down nature of God's work in the world, of the kingdom of God is somehow <clears throat> the inverse of what we might think. And it's, it's derived directly from the Beatitudes, the blessed R's that Courtney just read so beautifully. And uh, it's a, he's making a contrast here between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God, the foolishness of the gospel. Somehow, weakness is to be preferred to strength and lowliness over grandeur. Now, to illustrate this, um, this very counterintuitive truth or understanding of the world, I want to tell you three stories. And the first one is about worldly accomplishment <clears throat> as spiritual failure. Worldly accomplishment as spiritual failure. Uh, this is a story about a guy named John Fitzgerald Page. If you know who that is, um, in 2007, he was named the worst person in the world by Gawker, which is a now defunct website. The worst person in the world. What about this guy? What about him? Well, um, a young woman wrote in to say that she winked at this guy, John Fitzgerald Page, on a dating app, on Match.com. And she says she should have known better considering his screen name was, quote, Ivy League alum. <laughs> he responded with the following email. Hi, I live in a 31-story high-rise condominium right in the middle of the hottest neighborhood in Atlanta. I went to an Ivy League school, the University of Pennsylvania, for my undergraduate degree in economics and my graduate degree in management. Where did you go to school? What activities do you currently participate in to stay in shape? I work out four times a week at LA Fitness. I am six feet tall, 185 pounds. What about yourself? Do you have any other recent pictures you care to share? I have many others if you'd like to see them. Regards, John. And so the young woman in question writes, I in turn sent him a polite no thank you through the system. Well, a spurned and broken-hearted John Fitzgerald Page shoots back, I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me and therefore have to impress me and pass my standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. I am a trainer on the side. In fact, I am heading to the gym in 26 minutes. So next time you meet a guy of my caliber, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you one free training session so you don't blow it with the next Ivy League grad Mensa member can bench squat leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures, etc. Oh, that is right. There aren't any more of those. You're supposed to let, that's the punchline. <laughs> In the face of rejection, poor John Fitzgerald Page defends himself. 
and though he defends himself by listing out his resume uh, and a bunch of achievements and attributes and accolades that only dig him deeper. I mean, uh, the way he's thinking about these things, which may be fine, but the way he's thinking about them makes him less attractive rather than more. In the language of the New Testament, he mistakes losses for gains. He thinks these things are stuff that she will be excited to hear about, when in fact, the more he speaks, the worse it gets. This is worldly accomplishment as spiritual failure, and hopefully you are not as brazen as John Fitzgerald Page in your own attempts at doing the same thing. Uh, I know I have hopefully not been that level of obnoxious. And yet, there are less overt forms of the same thing. Maybe around someone who makes you feel insecure, you hear yourself dropping names. Like, why did I do that? Why did I have to make sure they knew where I went to college? Why did I, uh, why did I somehow seem like I had to fit it in where I went on vacation? You know, uh, my affiliations. Anything we can do to say, I'm like you, I deserve respect. This is a truth of human nature, that when we try to signal our significance, or our busyness, or our success, or our goodness, we usually just telegraph our insecurity. It's deeply, I mean, it's, it's not attractive. It's much more, what it, you want to find out these things by mistake about someone else, right? And if you're really manipulative, you can figure out ways for the other person to find these out by mistake. <laughs> it's sort of like an extra level. John is just way too on the surface. <clears throat> you could use a little help. Well, I can relate actually to that guy as much as I'd like to distance myself. But Paul, uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, he outlines a very different approach to life and to love and to goodness arriving in the world. He seems to advocate for an upside-down approach. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are. Now, he's not introducing this idea. Again, it's there in the Beatitudes that we just heard Jesus read. Jesus talks about what he considers blessed, and he doesn't say blessed are the successful, blessed are the self-controlled, blessed are those whose lives have gone according to plan, blessed are the, those who are impressive. No, he says blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourning, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry. These are the opposite of our aspirations. It's not just a first century thing. No one's ever run after these things. No matter who you are. I mean, and I've been studying these passages for, I don't know, 25 years. And I never seem to quite get it in my head that Jesus actually is, is values these things. Because I spend six and a half days a week running after the exact opposite. To get the right affiliations and the right associations and the right stickers on my car and the right car, and the right church, and the right opinions, and the right friends. Jesus uh, values the opposite. 
Now I'll tell you two more stories, and then I'm finished. One is a story of what this actually looks like. It's a story about Mr. Rogers. I'm sorry, it might make you cry. Stories about Mr. Rogers tend to make people cry because childhoods and saintliness and all that sort of stuff. Um, this is true, though. Once upon a time, there was a boy who didn't like himself very much. This boy was born with cerebral palsy, which for him meant that he could think, you know, in a normal sort of way, but he couldn't walk and he couldn't talk. He had to use a computer to, um, to communicate with other people. Well, as a teenager, he was a very frustrated individual, and he would get so mad at himself that he would hit himself with his own fists, and then he'd tell his mother on the computer he used to communicate that he didn't want to live anymore. But he'd always loved Mr. Rogers, and even as a teenager, he would watch Mr. Rogers' neighborhood whenever it came on. Now, his mother wanted to do something nice for him. She wanted him to meet Mr. Rogers, but they lived in California, and Mr. Rogers, as you may know, was based in Pittsburgh, and travel like that was prohibitive for them. But one day she learned through a foundation that helps out such children that Mr. Rogers was coming to California to visit Coco the gorilla, as one does, and <laughs> that afterwards he had time he was going to come and visit this young man. And so Mr. Rogers shows up and the boy is nervous. He's so nervous, in fact, that he begins hitting himself again. And he gets so violent that his mother has to take him into another room. But Mr. Rogers doesn't leave. He sticks around. He waits patiently, and when the boy comes back, Mr. Rogers talks to him, and he says something wild. He says, I would like you to do something for me. Would you do something for me? And the boy answered, yes, of course. I would do anything for Mr. Rogers. So then Mr. Rogers asks the boy, I would like you to pray for me. Will you pray for me? The boy didn't know how to respond. He was thunderstruck. You see, nobody ever had ever asked him for something like that, ever. He'd always been prayed for. He'd always been the object of prayer. And now he was being asked to pray for Mr. Rogers. He didn't know if he could do it, but he said he'd try. And ever since then, we're told that he did keep Mr. Rogers in his prayers. And he stopped talking about wanting to die. Because he figured that Mr. Rogers is close to God. And if Mr. Rogers likes him, then that must mean God likes him too. Now, when Mr. Rogers, when a journalist asked him about this story, the journalist complimented him on being so wise. Mr. Rogers, how did you know that asking the boy for his prayers would make him feel so much better about himself? But Mr. Rogers responded with befuddlement. What? Oh, oh, heavens no. I didn't ask the boy for his prayers for him. I asked for me. I asked him because I think that anyone who has gone through challenges like that must be very close to God. I wanted his intercession, his help. Now that, that's not just the foolish wisdom of Mr. Rogers. That's the foolish wisdom of God. That is the upside-down world in which the poor in spirit are not just tolerated or pitied, but are blessed. Somehow enjoy a closer relationship with God because of their need or whatever it may be. Now let me tell you one final story. And it's a story about the inverse of John Fitzgerald Page. It's a story about worldly failure as spiritual 
accomplishment. It involves my all-time favorite obituary. Do you read obituaries? The ones in the back of The Economist are pretty good. But um, there's been a, a trend the past few years of people writing very honest obituaries. And sometimes these are harrowing when it comes to someone who died of addiction or something like that. But online you can sometimes find it. Now this was written by a journalist named Ken Fusen. He was a sports journalist out in Des Moines. He died in 2020, liver disease. And he delivered a eulogy for himself on a website that made the rounds and it struck me deeply as an example of the foolishness of God. Ken writes this. He said, Ken attended his university's famous school of journalism. And by attended, that's just a clever way of saying almost graduated but didn't. In 1996, Ken took the principled stand of leaving the Des Moines Register because the Sun in Baltimore offered him more money. Three years later, having blown most of that money at the Pimlico racetrack, he returned to the Register where he remained until 2008. Ken had many character flaws. If he still owes you money, he's sorry, sincerely. But he liked to think he had a good sense of humor and a deep compassion for others. He prided himself on letting other drivers cut in line. He would give you the shirt off his back, even though it usually had food stains on it. Thank goodness nobody ever asked. It would not have been pretty. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. But his church friends and the loving people at Gamblers Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken placed his last bet on September 5th, 2009. He died clean. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it, which is hard, and accept it, which is even harder. Miracles abound, though. Now that, to me, is the inverse of John Fitzgerald Page. He does not provide, in his own obituary, he does not provide a parade of accomplishments, but a catalog of embarrassing details and defeats, through which what emerges is a picture of a beautiful soul who died with faith in God and transformed by the goodness of his community and the God at its center. There was something about that obituary which evinces freedom, the freedom that I find compelling in the extreme. And it's the kind of freedom that makes a reader's heart beam with appreciation, with identification, laughter, and hope. Now this is foolishness to the world, and yet to those who are perishing, it is the beauty and goodness and wisdom of the gospel. So the hard news for us this morning is that God's values are not our own. You and I run after success and accomplishment and respect. Yet the God of the universe, we are told, likes to turn up in failure, in weakness, in need, and in shame. So that's the hard news. The good news, though, is that God's values are not our own. There is something more to life than what you are running after and to the dead ends 
you and I encounter. And what lies at the end of those roadblocks is God himself revealed here in Jesus Christ, the friend, not to the winners, but to the debtors and to the sinners. The friend to those whose lives turned out differently than they'd hoped. So, to the extent that your life resembles John Fitzgerald Page, I'm sorry. (laughs) But to the extent that it resembles Ken, well, it could be that your experiences, even those of shame and defeat and flawedness, are going to be the vehicle of God's work and grace in your life. And I say that not just because I want it to be true, but because God's ultimate work and expression in the world comes through shame, confusion, and failure, and death, guilt, the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. That's where God is. That's where the wisdom of God is made manifest. So there's hope for Ken, and maybe there's hope for you, too. Amen.